Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle and I hope you're enjoying as much as I am the clocks uh, springing forward and giving us that extra bit of light in the morning and the evening. And I think it's a game changer for lots of us for our mental and emotional health. Now, in this episode, my co-host Cathy Sheridan is talking to a woman who has witnessed the worst in humanity in her role as an award winning war correspondent. I saw really horrific stuff, um, you know, from from a child dying in front of me in a hospital because no one could help him to a body which we thought was dead, um, you know, tr- banging on, on the door of a fridge saying, I'm alive, you put me in here. In a morgue. In a morgue. Yeah. Um, it, so I, I was sort of seeing, and, and to say nothing of the limbs that were outside the hospitals that had just been blown off and just left there, it was, it was, these were horrific scenes. That was the voice of Shireen Tadros there and you will be hearing much more from her in a moment. I just wanted to mention a couple of stories that caught our eye this week. The first is in relation to the abortion review, which is expected very soon. And thankfully, it looks like the recommendations are very sensible and will make a huge difference to women who need abortions. Sources are saying that the review suggests the removal of that three day wait to access medication. And as someone who has had an abortion, I know personally that three day wait would not be helpful and is kind of insulting when you've made up your mind. And that That was my experience anyway, and the experience of many women I've spoken to. But the experts also agree. The former master of the Rotunda Hospital, Fergal Malone, has said of the three day wait, we feel it's wrong in principle. As far as we can see, it is the only aspect of healthcare where a grown adult who has full control of their mental capacities is not listened to and is told to go away and come back in three days. There is no requirement we feel to have that there. As a principle, it is paternalistic and stigmatises women further by saying pregnant women are not in control of their faculties and need extra time. It does not sit well. And I fully agree with that. Uh, Jennifer Bray writing this week in the Irish Times says the new review of the state's abortion law is set to recommend a loosening of existing rules. And Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly received the report earlier this month. It was compiled by Barrister Mary O'Shea and it examines the operation of the abortion law. She was appointed by government to chair that review last year. And Jennifer had two senior political sources saying the review recommends a loosening of the current law. And we should mention that there are a number of politicians who have called for the removal of that waiting period, including people before Prophet TD, Breed Smith, Social Democratic leader Holly Kearns and Labour leader Ivana Bacic. So we wait for that review, but it does sound promising and hopefully the government will listen to those recommendations. Also this week, we heard that a judge-led review is expected to recommend that a full statutory inquiry should be established to examine widespread sexual abuse and harassment 
in our defence forces. The report by the Independent Review Group, established in 2021 to investigate matters first raised by a group of female veterans known as Women of Honour, is understood to make for stark and difficult reading and to detail extensive patterns of inappropriate and illegal behaviour within the military. It will detail bullying, harassment and sexual abuse of female and male Defence Forces members over many years. We've had some of those Women of Honour on the podcast and one of them, Yvonne O'Rourke, who was writing in the Irish Times this week about her in hopes for an inquiry. She's a former Air Corps captain who was sexually assaulted by a senior officer while she served in the Defence Forces. And she writes, many tribunals previously launched in Ireland failed the people who held complete faith in them to vindicate their fight for justice. In most cases, the outcome did not provide the much needed change and transformation for which the people who believed in them hoped and prayed. Thus, now this is where the men and women of the Defence Forces, both past and present, find themselves. We need, she writes, a statutory inquiry like no other. This inquiry needs to be different from ones that commenced before. I like to think of it as a David and Goliath moment. There is no more powerful image than the underdog overcoming the perceived giant. We need this inquiry to fire a slingshot and bring about the much needed change and transformation that is required by the Department of Defence in its entirety. She writes, the question remains, will our voices finally be heard and will the silence that so many of us held on to for so many years in the past due to the crippling shame that the experience of being sexually abused and discriminated against bestowed on us, will it finally be removed? Is this really a watershed moment? Is this the time for the dam of inequity to finally break wide open? Well, let's hope that that statutory inquiry is as transformative as these campaigners hope it might be. They're incredible women who have fought so hard and we should be very grateful to them. Now today, we are looking at the deeply moving memoir of an award-winning war correspondent turned activist and her rousing defence of human rights in times of resurgent authoritarianism. As a broadcast journalist for Sky News and Al Jazeera, Shireen Tadros was trained to tell only the facts as dispassionately as possible. But how can you remain neutral when reporting from war zones or witnessing brutal state repression? For 26 years, Tadros grew up in the quiet surroundings of her family's London home. And yet injustice was something her Egyptian immigrant parents could never shelter her from. From her first journalistic assignment trapped inside a war zone in the Gaza Strip to covering the Arab uprisings that changed the course of history, Tadros searched for ways to make a difference in people's lives. But it wasn't until her fiancé left her on their wedding day and her life fell apart that she found the courage to pursue her true purpose. It was the beginning of an incredible journey leading her to work for Amnesty International at the United Nations. Uh, That's where she works now and she lobbies governments to ensure that human rights are protected around the world. I think you're going to find this woman's story fascinating and inspiring. And we're delighted also to welcome Cathy Sheridan back to the podcast. Here she is with Shireen Tadros. Shireen, we'll begin at the beginning. You grew up in... uh Very affluent, very religious family, Coptic Christians in London, convent school, swaddled by affluence, but also in an Arabic-speaking Middle East culture in an England that was openly hostile to immigrants, which is a very strange mix of things. What was that like? Well, I describe in the book how friends used to jokingly, mockingly, I'm not quite sure which one, call me a halfie. So... 
I was sort of this Egyptian-looking, Egyptian-sounding in, in some ways to them um, girl. But at the end of the day, I was born in London and I still had a British accent and I didn't go back to Egypt or born in Egypt or any of those sort of things that, you know, some of the others um, immigrants around me did. So it, it felt very much like I, I had a foot in both worlds. Um, but growing up, it felt more like I didn't belong anywhere than I belonged in two places. And you kind of did in many ways because you went to Egypt every summer from the, the night you got your school holidays to the night before you went back to school. Yeah. The family simply took off to, yeah. to Egypt. Yeah. So, so that was, it was still very, very much a part of you. Very much so. I mean, my parents were very proud of their Egyptian heritage and culture. They didn't want us to lose that. We spoke Arabic at home. You would walk into my house and it did not look like my friends' um, houses, the, my British friends' houses at all. Um, there'd be, you know, icons of Jesus and Mary all around the house and um, there would be a smell of incense. There would be smell of Egyptian cooking. Um, so, so it was always different. I was always sort of nestled, if you like, in this, in this culture. But then I'd leave the house and I'd get on the bus um, and it would hit me, the sort of other side, if you like. Um, and, and that made me feel pretty confused growing up because I think as, I think as an immigrant, you know, it was almost like the message was, we want you to do well enough that you are a legitimate part of society, but don't do so well that you raise your head above the line and get too noticed. And that was a really difficult line for me to, you know, to, to, to follow. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure that I ever sort of understood that balance very well until later in life. Initially, Shireen, when you were young, and I don't know how long this lasted, but you describe racist incidents, you know, abuse directed at your father, possibly your mother. Can you just tell us a bit about that, about how, I'm not saying it's improved all that much, but how yeah. London was like back in those days? Yeah, so it sort of started, I guess, before I was before I was born, when my parents first moved to the UK. So we're talking now about the 1970s. Um, and... The first thing that my parents sort of tried to do together is buy this fish and chip shop called Dish and Dash. Um, and they thought, you know, this can be a sort of family business. And it was a fish and chip shop that was sort of very, you know, run of the mill and King's Cross. Um, and my, my parents tell me about this, this incident where one night um, a drunken customer came in, started all very nicely and, you know, I want this fish, I want these chips. And then suddenly it all turned pretty bad once he sort of, I guess, heard my father's accent or he saw um, something that he didn't like. So he starts, you know, with these racist slurs, he eventually takes his chips and throws them at my father. Um, it misses my father because he very cleverly ducks down but hits my mother straight in the face. So she has a face full of greasy, oily chips. And, and you know, I'm not sure at that point she'd even sort of really processed, you know, that this is a form of racism and that this is something, you know, that you can't do anything about. It's simply someone who, who doesn't like the way you look and the way you sound. Um, but there were little instances of that growing up. I know that others experience much more severe forms of racism. But for me, it was sort of a drip of constantly feeling like we were guests here. Um, and, you know, the message from my parents was to sort of forgive, to walk away, not to confront. Mm. 
And I think it's interesting. I just want to maybe clarify something that I said. You grew up in a very affluent family, but in fact, your parents worked extremely hard for their success in London, yeah. as evidenced by the fish and ship shop. Yeah, right. Right at the beginning, I think, you know, like like so many immigrants, you um, you can do very well in your home country. You can have all these degrees. You go to a Western country and suddenly they don't mean anything and you start from scratch. And that's what it was like for my father. And he actually, the first job he had was driving a taxi cab and, and trying to get a few other cars and people to drive taxis with him. Um, so he really hustled. Um, and it wasn't, you know, until probably the beginning of the 80s that he actually started to make, make real money. Um, luckily, that's when I was born. So, yeah. And interestingly, Shireen, just going back a bit, just to just to complete the family uh, history, I suppose, both your mother and father's families experienced terrible stuff in Egypt. You know, that they it was part of the reason why they got out and moved to London was because of what you call a, the, a socialist experiment that went on there. Yeah, they were, you know, growing up under the the rule of Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, which, uh, you know, is a very divisive, uh, controversial in many ways figure. Some people love him, some people do not. Um, but what, what he actually did was a sort of forced levelling um, where he really tried to impose um, some a socialist system, essentially, um, on the country. And what that meant for my family was that their factory trees, their lands, and so on was was nationalized quite literally overnight. Um, and my father was quite scarred by this. He remembers very clearly when, you know, authorities walked into his father's factory, a factory that he had seen his father work for, you know, since he was born and wake up every morning at 5 a.m. to go to and work at. And they said, it's now ours. And his father said to them, okay, but I left my glasses upstairs. Can I get them from my office, and they said no. And I, for some reason, this really affected my father. Like, he, he really remembers that, even though he was quite young, how they wouldn't even let him get his glasses. And, and at that point, you know, land was nationalized and, and the factory uh, was under uh, regime or, or government control. So these were sort of scarring effects. And I think that my father at one point thought, I don't want my life to be here. Um, I don't want to raise my children here. But, you know, having said that, he now spends a huge amount of time in Egypt. He was never able to sort of really let go of his roots there, even 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 career wise. Um, and and they both very much love the country. Um, but it has passed through very difficult times. Mm. But he did what immigrants do in London and he built up a hugely successful wholesale vegetable business, I yes. think, um, and which is how you managed to be raised in St. John's Wood. Yes. Uh, well done you. Yeah, <laughs> well I think, done him. I think, well, well done everybody. Uh, but you came along, I think, just at the right time when they had achieved this level of influence and all the rest. Yeah. But Shireen, so you would have, one would imagine that would have given you a certain kind of immunity to what, to what was happening around you. Yeah. But you still felt like this, what you called a half H-A-L-F-I-E, yeah. that you were always half and half. I did. And, you know, I, I do think that, you know, racism comes in, in different forms. And for me, it, would, it was really microaggressions. And I internalized them very much. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it was a combination of my experience in the UK as feeling as an outsider and going back to Egypt and witnessing for myself the extreme inequality, the corruption, the injustice of the system there, all of that gave me this sense inside of me that something is wrong here. Something is something needs to be fixed. Um, it just took me a while to realize that I had a role in fixing it. 
Right. So let's get to the beginning then of your uh, how you went into journalism. So you went to university, which was you never left your home, you know, your lovely home. You were mm. university was down the road, the yeah. school was down the road, all that sort of thing. So really, uh, you had a very comfortable existence. Yeah. And but then you had to get out there and do something. Yeah. Get a job. Yeah. So what? tell us about that. So at this point, I'm, I'm studying. I'm really interested in Middle East politics. But from a very academic point of view, I want to do a master's. I want to study it. Um, I, I'm sort of thinking about what to do with my life a little bit more in terms of making money, but not really. And then 9-11 happens and the Iraq war happens. And my region, the Middle East, is on fire. And everyone is talking about it in the media. And I become this um, sort of important resource for the media, for example, who need translations, who need understanding of what's going on. I even get called in to, to consult at one point for um, the civil service. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of seen as an Arabist at a time when there weren't so many around. And what, um, age, what age are you? I'm now stage? sort of in my early 20s. Right. Um, so at that point, I, I'm called by a friend, actually, saying that there's someone at the BBC doing some documentary on Iraq or so on, and, and they need they need someone to just come in and, and have a chat with them about a, their piece. So I go to the BBC newsroom, not really thinking about journalism at that point at all, and then walk into this just incredible studio um, with, you know, these flying papers and these desks and these people speaking. And I sit while I'm waiting for this appointment, and I listen to these conversations and I realized that the news doesn't just happen. The news is made. And it was made by the people in that room making those decisions, what to put on, when to put it on, what to play while people were speaking. So if you had a correspondent on talking about a certain topic, they were deciding what visual images you were going to see at home that would invoke some sort of emotion or not. And I just thought what an incredible power and what incredible responsibility that is. And I didn't look back. So at that point, you were thinking, you weren't thinking, will I be a presenter? Will I be? Uh... No, I don't think so. I think it was a lot more um, academic still for me than that. I was thinking, what can I do in this space? How can I have my voice heard here? Because I, I didn't think the coverage of the Iraq war um, and what was going on, even policy-wise, uh, was sound that would lead to would lead to any good, certainly for for my region and and, and the people the, the people that I'd sort of grown up with in the Middle East. Um, so I wanted to have a role in the media. I didn't really think about becoming an on-air person. I was really thinking more about producing and editing and so on. So tell me what happened next. So you decide I want to be a journalist. You're still the halfy. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's not an obvious role for somebody in your head. Yeah. What you, this image you have of yourself. Right. So what did you do? So I start applying, you know, left, right and center for, you know, internships, anything I could get. I, I finally get something with an, with an Arabic news channel. Um, and they, you know, the boss knows someone at ITV News. So he sets me up for sort of two or three weeks internship, which is all code for we're not going to pay you anything. And, and you can just sort of do all the work, menial work that no one wants to do. But that was fine by me. And, and, and I was in this very privileged position of being able to work for free, living at home and, and having my parents support. So, you know, like, like so many other journalists, I started with these, you know, free internships. Um, 
And then, you know, it became very clear to me that British news was just not an option for me. I mean, it's not, it became clear to me, it's people said it to me, that if I wanted anything on air, for example, that was just never going to happen with a name like Shireen Tadros and, you know, the way I look. And then I went for an internship program at BBC News, um, which is very, you know, which is which is highly competitive. Um, and everyone told me it was really difficult to get. And I thought, no, I think, you know, I have a particular set of skills. Let's try. And so I get, I think, to the last round. And this After was months. grueling. There have been loads of grueling. rounds. Grueling. Yes. I remember one of the rounds was, you know, some sort of, you know, those those psychiatry tests where they show you pictures and you have to, you know, tell what, what do you see. It was, it, was, it was that intensive. And I was thinking, what has this got to do with anything? So I finally get to, you know, the interview stage. And I get a call saying, you know, well, well done to you. You, you know, you were in the top three or something like that. And, um, but unfortunately, you... You didn't make it. And and I asked for feedback and I said, why? And they go, well, we felt that you rolled your R's and, you know, there was something in your accent that was a little troubling for us. And then it, the conversation became really awkward as I, you know, I was born in, in London. English is my first language. I, I just, I don't really understand what you're saying. Plus, you know, why does that make a difference for an internship? And they were like, well, we, we want to see, we want to sort of raise these budding correspondence and this is how we get them in so we need to see that kind of potential early on and essentially they didn't see it in me so because of an accent I never knew I had I lost out on this job and I thought okay that <laughs> I'm never going to make it here and it's not so much giving up as it, it was just sort of you know frustration and disappointment because I, I knew that I had something to offer this industry uh, and no one could see past my rolling R's. <laughs> just just for a moment here did you think, oh, my God, do I roll my oars in a strange, un-English oh, way? Oh, I did. I well, I, I, I was recording you. myself and listening I, it back to myself going, they sound normal to me. <laughs> yeah, you roll your oars when you're, when, you're, when you're pronouncing Arabic names. Yeah. Which, of course, is how it's done in Arabic. Right. Um, but, but is that what they were thinking? I mean, yeah. what do you think they were thinking, Shireen? I, I just think at that time, you know, where we're talking about the early 2000s, there just there just weren't people who sounded like me, looked like me, had a name like me. It was just a whole image for them. And, and, and it was very difficult for them to see someone like me on air having any sort of legitimacy. And, and it took many years for the BBC really to start to you know, to change their mind. And it started, I think, with with South Asians and then, you know, and it started with BBC London and then it sort of, you know, rolled its way to, to headquarters. But it, it really did take a while for them to to see us as legitimate voices. Um, and even, you know, even when I joined Al Jazeera English, you know, the truth is that I spent, you know, quite a few weeks lowering the tone of my voice. They actually with sent you for voice lessons. yeah. And it wasn't my R's at that point. It was it was the tone of my voice. So they they needed to lower it. It was too high, and it was too high because women have high higher tone than men. So essentially, they were just trying to lower my tone so I sounded more like a man, and that was considered more legitimate. So you know, this was the this was the this was the way of broadcast at that time to sound legitimate. You couldn't be from the Middle East covering the Middle East. Certainly not. You couldn't have an Arab name because that meant that you were going to be biased and you needed to sound credible and credibility meant, you know, a, a very pristine British male accent. 
The fact that you persisted past the BBC Rolling R's episode is so impressive. Tell us a little bit about how you <laughs> steamed on and yeah. got the job with Al Jazeera English. Yeah, it was really lucky because this this um, news editor that I was working with in the Arabic channel, he said to me, I am hearing that Al Jazeera is going to launch an English language channel. And as soon as the words came out of his mouth, I was like, this is finally this is what I've been waiting for. It's an it's an English channel, but it's based in the Middle East, and it's going to be have have a strong focus on the Middle East, but cover global news. And the whole idea is, we're not going to parachute people in. We're going to have people on the ground who speak the language, who understand. And I knew from watching Al Jazeera Arabic that that's the way they operated. You know, they were known for sort of having very much sort of local staff um, cover, even if they weren't. Uh, great reporters as such or trained journalists or, you know, um, those sort of on-air personalities that you would think, they were they, they put a premium um, on on the sort of value of having local local knowledge. And Al Jazeera English was, was sort of saying the same thing. So it, there I found a home. And um, yeah, and I, I, again, grueling weeks and weeks and weeks long process to, to get in. But I finally did. And I got the lowest job and the lowest paying job in the newsroom. But I, I got a job. And given that I was earning zero before, it was a step up. And what's kind of fascinating is you'd been living at home until you were, what, 20? 26. 26. Yeah. And your mother, who was sitting across from us here. Yes. <laughs> uh, so the job meant moving to Doha. Yes. So that was fairly um, yeah. worrying. It was, it was, I mean, it doesn't sound so radical, does it, no. leaving home at 26? But it, <laughs> it, was for, it was for me. I hadn't spent a night away from my parents, apart from one trip that I went on with my best friend um, just after I, I, I graduated. Um, but apart from that, I, I didn't I didn't spend the night away. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways I was sheltered. I mean, I, I was taken to Egypt. I'd seen a lot of this injustice as we spoke about and, and, and noticed a lot of this. Uh, so in that way, they couldn't shelter me from that. But but certainly in my sort of day-to-day life, it was it was pretty it was pretty sheltered. So this idea to to move to Doha. Um, hard to explain exactly, you know, where, where, in, you know, where inside of me it it even came from. But it was something that I, I knew that I had to do if if I was really going to take this career seriously and get it to the next level. So tell us about your first experiences. The first there. conflict I, I was in was um, was in Beirut. Um, it was sort of after the two thousand and six war, um, so it was sort of post the Hezbollah Israel conflict, but. Beirut was still, and Lebanon as a whole, was still very much in conflict. Um, And it was sort of sporadic violence. And I would go in and out pretty regularly. And then I went in at a time when it was was pretty hairy. um, And I did, under those circumstances, my very first live shot. (laughs) And I don't want to ruin it for those who will still buy it and read the book. But let's just say the first live shot did not go as planned. No, it's actually very funny, <laughs> although it can't have seemed funny at the time. No. Uh, but it, was, it includes a chair that suddenly sort of collapsed on you or something, yes. which sounds terrible. Mm. But you, you persisted. Yes. And what happened next? 
And then I I got this sort of opportunity to go to Jerusalem to cover for a reporter, producer who had left for holiday. And um, when I was in Jerusalem, my editor said, would you mind going to the Gaza Strip just to cover for 24 hours? It was the night of the U.S. election. Uh, the U.S. were about to elect their first black president. This was 2008. 2008, yes. such a huge moment. Um, and so... You know, I was just meant to go and, and and actually I remember my editor telling me, don't worry, no one is going to care about this story. Everyone is looking at what's going on in the US. I mean, it would take a huge event for you to be on air. Because I was saying to him, you know, I don't know if I'm ready even for this. And he's going, you know, nothing's yes, going to happen. Yes, you're still smarting after the experience back yeah, in Beirut. Yeah, exactly. You haven't I don't know. been accustomed at <laughs> I don't all know if you to saw television. me, but I'm, yes. I'm not great at this. I, I don't know if I'm I'm your girl. And he's like, no, this is this is a good, you know, way to get your feet wet, actually, because nothing's going to happen. Here's 20 shekels. Buy yourself a nice fish meal. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, great. Let's do this. I didn't really want to go because I'd been to Gaza just for a few hours um, once before, and it is the most claustrophobic, difficult place. It, it was sort of, it felt very hopeless and sad to me. Yeah. Felt It felt um, not not necessarily dangerous, just just you know, what you see in the book, Shireen, is that it sucks the happiness out yes, of you. Exactly. Yes, exactly. It, it, it felt that way. And so I didn't really want to spend much time there. Um, but um, I thought 24 hours, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um, and of course, that night, um, Israel launched an incursion into the Gaza Strip. It ended a ceasefire that was brokered by Egypt. And then we we start sort of the countdown to the war, the assault of Gaza by Israel in, in at the end of 2008 and into 2009. And I sit there for sort of weeks covering the, the run-up. And then when the war actually breaks out, it's just after the first strikes happen just after Christmas. And as it happens, the correspondents who sort of usually come into Gaza to cover and were covering this sort of, uh, you know, drumbeat of war. Christine Amanpours and all those. All of them. parachuted in. Usually, yes. and But not this time, because as soon as it happened, um, Israel and Egypt closed their crossing points and nobody could get in and nobody and nothing, as in aid and so on, could get out as well. As, so you who had said trip. anywhere but Gaza, yeah, you're trapped in this trapped place. Trapped inside of Gaza. With one other, with a colleague. With my colleague, Ayman Mohideen, who's also Al Jazeera. And your mother is at home. Yeah. Watching this unfold. Yes. Which is horrendous. Yes. And I describe the moment um, where I have to call her and, and tell her, um, you know, don't worry, I'm sure it will be over soon. But there's just been, you know, about 25 missiles in the last hour. And and it seems like there's a war. Um, So that was terrible. And I do think it's one of those things that journalists never talk about, but that we all share, which is calling your loved one, mother, brother, whoever, wife, uh, and telling them that you're, you're about to go to a war zone or you're stuck in a war zone. But, you know, it's worth saying at this point as well that this sort of feeling of of being stuck in Gaza is what still to this day two million Palestinians are feeling right now because there's still a blockade and still a siege of the Gaza Strip. And we could spend three days talking about this, Shireen, and I really would like that. Uh, But you are stuck there for 79 days. Yes. You who had gone in for a day and to have a nice fish dinner. Yeah. You're 79 days later, you're yeah. still there under yeah. the most terrible conditions. Absolute bombardment um, by the land. Bombardment came from the crossing points, but also a, a, a limited incursion as well into the Gaza Strip. So huge tanks firing everywhere. Uh, by land, about two, three miles out, there were warships firing onto the Gaza Strip. And 
up dozens and dozens of missiles um, fired by F-16 jets um, all across the strip. And there was there's no front line here. There's nowhere you drive to and, okay, this is where the fighting is. Um, there was nowhere safe. You couldn't leave. And it occurs to me on sort of day two, where's that story that we all cover when there's a war where we go to a border, we speak to refugees, they're fleeing, they tell us what they left behind, they're sitting in the UN tents. There's none of that story because there are no refugees, there is no refuge, there is nowhere to go. No border crossings. And and it was it was just so devastating because I think that Israel had spent so long dehumanizing Palestinians, especially in Gaza, that when they when this happened, there was so little outrage, so little outrage. I think in subsequent wars, we've seen a lot more reaction and international reaction. But in 2008, it just it felt like felt like nobody cared, certainly from the inside. The, the narrative kind of changed, Shireen, but we'll get back to that because I think that's important to what you did with the with, with, with the second half of your career, if I can call it that. Mm. But let's just stay there for a moment. While you were in Gaza, this in many ways was the making of you as a, as a TV journalist. Yeah, it was definitely, you know, that sort of moment that you have your, your big break. Um, everybody was watching. There was, you know, we were the only English-speaking you know, correspondents there. And Al Jazeera did this incredible thing where, as almost like a service to th- the news, it released the footage that Eamon and I were taking, and it made it available for anyone to to use, so other news channels, because it felt that, you know, we, we have this responsibility. If Israel's going to close these borders and not allow anyone in, at least we can get the, these sort of images out. So that was our attempt to break the ban yeah. um, that was happening. And Shireen, I was very struck by your choice of story, which was yeah. your first story. Yeah. And I tend to think a woman would, or a man wouldn't have made that choice. Yes. <laughs> what did you do? Your very yeah. first, you know, very important story. Yeah. Well, let's just say as well that it took me days to, to you know, go in front of the camera. I spent those sort of first few days, you know, really in shock and And saying, no, I'm not, I'm not going I'm in front not, of the camera. Yeah. I was reporting in so yeah. far as gathering information and telling Eamon, but Eamon was, was doing all the live shots and, and the stories. And I mean, truly, every, everyone thought, oh, he probably told you, you know, this is my story. And I was saying, no, Eamon was begging me. Like, he was so tired. Please go and do There's only two of us. Um, but I was terrified and I thought everyone's going to see me and they're going to know I'm terrified um, and I, I just can't do it. I'm just I'm still trying to process what I'm seeing. I, I saw really horrific stuff, um, you know, from from a child dying in front of me in a hospital because no one could help him to a body which we thought was dead, um, you know, tr- banging on, on the door of a fridge saying, I'm alive, you put me in here. In a morgue. In a morgue. Yeah. Um, it, so I, I was sort of seeing, and, and to say nothing of the limbs that were outside the hospitals that had just been blown off and just left there, it was, it was these were horrific scenes and nobody was capturing this for, for the outside world. There were incredible Palestinian journalists that were working on the ground. Um, but as foreign journalists, it, it was only Eamon and I so I decide to, okay, it's time to go out and to and to cover the story and to and to appear. Um, and for my first story, I find this woman called Rima, and she lives in an apartment which is luxurious in Gaza because so many live in these sort of refugee camps and 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 in really difficult circumstances. So she lives in this apartment with her three kids. She's a single mother, and 
nothing had actually happened to her. She didn't have a relative who died and a kid didn't die. Her husband didn't die. She's just sitting there with her, her three kids the whole time. And I, and I go, I take the cameraman and I just sort of start speaking to her. Just, you know, let's see what she has to say. And, and sort of immediately, I just feel she, so relatable. What, what a relatable person. She just starts talking about how worried she is for her children, how those first days of the bombardment, especially the first moments where her kids were actually at school and she was hearing that the bombardment was close to where, where their schools are and she's running out trying to get them. You know, how, how could anyone not relate to that or not, not, not feel for that? Um, and, and before long, I feel like I'm speaking to her and tears are running down my face because I, I just, I really feel for her. And um, it's something about the power of, and, and the, how genuine she was. We weren't talking politics. We weren't talking about Hamas. We weren't even talking about Israel. We we're just talking about a, a, a woman trying to survive and protect her children. And she had this um, son, Asil. He was about six years old. And he would follow her everywhere. He said, you know, he, he, she was telling me that he, even when she went to the bathroom, would sit next to her. Um, and, and so I, I said, okay, well, we have to interview Asil and tell the cameraman, do a nice close-up of him. And let's see, you know, what he says. So I ask him, you know, why won't you leave your mother's side? And he goes, no, it's not because I am afraid of dying. I am afraid that my mom will die and then she'll leave me here alone. And you just think it's, it's such a human thing. It's such a kid thing, actually. They're, 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 they're scared to be alone that they, you know, who's going to provide for me? Who, how am I going to survive? So he had gone past the sort of fear of something's going to happen to me. And he was into, I'm, something's going to happen to her. And what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of my brother and sister? What am I, I can't have this responsibility. And so he's sticking to her so that if she dies, he dies too. And he said that. Yes. So that if she dies, I die too. For a six-year-old. Yeah. So that aired, Shireen, and that was, that was actually the beginning of your on-screen career. Yeah. And after that... Yeah. Life continued on for I don't know how long after that interview. That was your first. Yeah. Did you find yourself settling in and thinking, wow, I've really got a handle on this now? No. Or what, what were your feelings? No, the whole way through, I cried every day of that war. And I felt, you know, I felt the same way every single day of that war. And it, it never normalized for me. Um, and it was never okay. And every day brought a different story with a different tragedy. Um, and... And I hated it the whole time. And, you know, truthfully, I, I wanted out the whole time too. Um, and just there's this image of us as journalists sort of being immune to all of that and mm. not afraid and go-getters. And we're going to know your, your instinct, you know, is often to, that, that you want out, but you, you also have this sense of responsibility. And I often wonder, you know, if those borders were open and there were all these other journalists there, would I have stayed or, or would I have said, OK, well, there, there are others who can do this? Because in, in subsequent even Gaza wars, others were allowed in and I, and I did stay. So I think I made that choice later. Um, there was one point during the Gaza war where, where we were, it was communicated to us by the military that they would allow safe passage out for Amen and I if we chose. Um, and if we didn't choose, then you know, so be it. You, you, you know, you, you have your fate. You've made your choice. Yes. yes. 
And at that that night, I'd actually spent the night with a Palestinian family filming so that I could show what it was like to spend the night. The bombardment was worse at night. And so I woke up to this news and I and I just remember, you know, speaking to Amen and he was like, well, I'm, I'm not going. And I just thought, I can't, I can't. I can't leave this. I can't leave this story because then that's one less person who's going to be telling these stories, and it was it was a huge responsibility. But you know, I don't want to make out like I'm this martyr because, like I said, I think that if there was there were other people there covering it, I think I could have made a different choice. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shuna, I think there's a very interesting push-pull in the book from you about TV presenters about people who put themselves out there, especially war reporters, where you say, you know, and this, this happens towards the end of your time on television where you begin to think about all of this and you say, no, we're always put at the centre of the action. We have to be where, the, mm. we have to be seen to be taking risks. Yeah. The reporter becomes the centre of the yeah. story, which is absolutely true and rang great bells with me. Yeah. Um, were you feeling this from the beginning or did you feel, no, I'm a very necessary person here or yeah. I'm taking myself away from the camera and giving the, giving the focus on those? How did you manage that? Yeah, no, I think I had a sense of if I'm going to be here and everyone knows I'm here because there isn't <laughs> anyone else. So they know the story is definitely mine. Um, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to tell these people's stories. I think, you know, what's happened to broadcast news is is really tragic because this is really sort of the last, you know, more more like the last decade and maybe even even less than that, where we find that increasingly, you know, the reporter has to be in every shot. And I, I end up watching stories and I'm not sure what I've learned at the end of them. They're very entertaining. The two yeah. minutes pass super fast. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, a lot of action is going on, but I can't tell you a single thing I've learned from watching yes. the story. Yeah. And I think that that's when, you know, journalism is, is, is not doing its job. It, it's not entertainment. It's meant yeah. to inform. If you're not getting anything from going to the front line, why are you at the front line? Why are you risking your life for, you yes. know, because then you're doing it for entertainment and, and, and not to expose something, not to show something. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a line that's being crossed too often. The other aspect that comes across in the book very strongly is this tug between being objective, mm. which is how my generation of journalists would have mm. seen it. You have to be objective and apparently neutral at all times in order to appear to be telling the story yeah. uh, from a neutral point of view. You, you began like that. Yeah. And then what happened? I think what I realised was that 
I'm not sure I'm doing the viewer a service um, by presenting things as balanced when they're not. Because I think a lot of the time in the effort to balance out unbalanced stories, we actually end up not telling the truth. And it's not done because we're biased. It's actually done because we're trying not to be biased. Mm -hmm. And certainly with Israel-Palestine, there is such a pressure to go, well, the Palestinians, the Israelis are saying this. The this happened to the Palestinians. This happened to this many Israelis. That in the end, you're, you're sort of creating a sense of balance and uh, a balance of power, a balance of military that doesn't exist. And so you're not actually telling the story. So it's not about neutrality. It's actually about being truthful and report and being confident in that this story is imbalanced. I will have the confidence to tell it like that. I think where where you cross the line as a journalist is when you're doing this story and you're doing it in a certain way to influence an outcome in order to change policy or in order to change a vote or whatever it is. That's when you're, you know, you're going outside of your mandate. But if you're actually reporting the truth, if you're actually just saying what's going on and what if what's going on doesn't look very good for one side, I, I don't think that that is bad reporting. Mm. There's so much in that. The other thing that, that <laughs> you obviously felt very... Um, Conflicted, I suppose, was you after Gaza. Yeah, you came in for a pile of awards. Yeah, the RTS, the Peabody Award, the Emmy. You're a nominee yeah. for an Emmy, um, and what you say is their misery propelled my success. Yeah, which is such an interesting observation yeah. and very true. Did you have to think very deeply about accepting the awards? Did you accept them and make a speech, or how did you manage that? I think at the time, right after I, I had a lot of reservations about about what was going on. And I was still really trying to process and even speak to therapists and so on about what had happened. But when the when the awards started coming through, I mean, there is this momentum that happens. This sort of you've worked very hard in your career to get here. People told you you'd never make it because of your R's. And now here you are. And part of me felt proud that I'd made it to this elite club of war journalists. And with that comes, now that you're in here, you need to act like one of us. And we are tough. And we don't sit there and go, oh, but people are suffering. I don't know if I should. No, you get over it. This is our job. So there was that at play, too, for a while, where it was like, I need to toughen up if I'm going to continue here, you know? Yeah. But it, it just didn't last long. So I went to the awards and I did enjoy them. And I did, you know, sit in Monte Carlo and enjoy the day before I went with my parents to the, to the, to the awards. But after that, I went back to Jerusalem. I went back to Gaza and I faced Rima and I faced the people that I did stories about. And they told me, you were here in our worst moments. We gave you access to our lives and our stories at a time that was catastrophic for us. So what are you giving us back? What's, wh what is happening? What's happening out there? And all I could tell them was, here's my award. And <laughs> it, 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 I felt truly as unaccountable as the soldiers that had done that to their home. Yes. Um, I've covered very few wars, Shireen, but I do remember standing in, a, in, in Kosovo and thinking, mm. I really want to be a doctor. How useless am I? Uh, you did something very different, which is much more overarching. And we'll get to that. But mm. what I want you to tell me is you did suffer from PTSD by the sound of things yes. after Gaza. 
but you, it wasn't recognised as such because it was only coming in episodes. Is that yes. correct? Yes, and the episodes weren't sort of um, waking up in the middle of the night with nightmares and cold sweats and mm. it wasn't addiction-based and it wasn't a car backfiring and me, you know, fleeing for my life. It was a lot more subtle. It was a sort of disassociation um, an inability to deal with quite small things like, um, I don't know, the inland revenue sending me an email. Um, things like that would just completely throw me off. Um, this sort of, I, I, my cup was full and I couldn't have even a tiny bit more. Um, and little stuff to do with children that I saw that reminded me of children in Gaza. Uh, certain things would just really set me off. And then you know, I was in a taxi going to my office in Jerusalem and he asked me for the exact change. I didn't have the exact change. And he said, well, what am I going to do? You need the exact change. And suddenly that was it. I was on the floor crying outside on the pavement to the point where he said, that's fine. You can just sit here. I'll just drive <laughs> off. And there I was in the middle of West Jerusalem, you know, crying on a pavement. And then a friend took me home. I spent a day and a half just sort of staring at the wall, quite honestly. And then I went back to work. And, and no that, one asked. That didn't stop you. So we're going to chase on to Egypt. Yes. Which was personal. Yes. This wasn't just a, a, exactly. a, a marking for your for your for yeah. your your employer. Tell us a little bit about how they, so this was the uh, that most people listening to this will remember because it was the year twenty eleven. Twenty eleven, the Great Awakening. Yes. Of Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, uh, yes. Libya. Syria, yes. yes. And it, it felt like the beginning of a whole new era. Yes. Uh, but tell us anyway, you, you chose to go to Egypt in spite, yes. of, in spite of your reaction to Gaza. Yes. You're obviously, you're not fearless, but you are determined. Yeah. So you find yourself in Egypt. Yeah. And this time it is personal. Yeah. So what happens there, tell me? And it's personal because, you know, let's, let's remember, you know, where we started from, right? What got me into this work to begin with was this sense of injustice and inequality in Egypt. And it was very much the experiences that I describe in the book of being very formative for me of, of a sense of injustice inside of me. So here we are, you know, so many years later, and it, the Egyptian people are rising and saying no to this corruption no to this president um, and saying that we deserve rights and we, you know, and freedoms because we are citizens of this country and, and, and we are not going to lie down anymore and let you hand over power to your son like this. So this felt very much like the culmination of how I felt as an Egyptian and also the culmination of what Al Jazeera had been doing for many years of, un, you know, lifting the veil, if you like, of the corruption in Egypt under the regime. So a this, great risk to itself, actually. Yeah. It, was, it was very much targeted. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. You know, nobody questioned the narrative at that time of, mm. of, of what was happening in Egypt. Um, and, so, and so it was very dangerous. But, you know, Al Jazeera persisted. And then this moment happened. So, yeah, we, we, were, we were desperate to get in there. And it took me four flights. And I don't know, you know, how many, many, many hours to get from Jerusalem to, to Cairo. But I, I land there. Um, and I and I go to the square, the protest square called Tahrir Square, and I sit there for days interviewing people, listening to their stories. I mean, I'd grown up with no one really saying the word Mubarak, the, the president's name. And if you did, you said the great President Mubarak, and there were pictures of him everywhere you went, and you know, you any official place you went, there's like four or five, and there he was, the same picture, and people throwing their shoes at him. 
Um, and it was just <laughs> mind blowing, mind blowing. I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't even understand, you know, this, this sort of outburst and, and the speed at which it happened where these were the same people who I had passed in the street a year ago and, and wouldn't say the word Mubarak to me when I put a, you know, I put a microphone to their face and there they are now talking about how they're in a bread queue and this is meant to be subsidized bread, but half of it is taken for the rich people because they end up, so, so there's this, all this sort of, out, everything's Which coming out. Which you can out. see, you can see the bread being, yeah. being hidden away. For, right. For the Oh, for yeah, the, but it's finished. People. Yeah, it's yes. finished but for today. Finished. But this yeah. is subsidized bread. No, it's finished for today. Mm. So, so you know, there's this anger and this articulation of this anger. And it's by women, too, and young women. And it's just incredible to report on. And I get this new lease of life, I think, after I'd felt quite burnt out post-Gaza. Yes. And what am I doing? And what's the difference? Nothing changed in Gaza. Don't forget, you know, there was a ceasefire, but the, the you know crossings didn't open. The siege continued. So I, I felt this perpetual guilt and depression, quite honestly. And then Egypt comes along and it offers me this hope. Yes. And then? And then the moment comes and, yes. um, and you know, Hosni Mubarak steps down. Which must have been so exhilarating. Euphoric. And yes. I was in the square at the time and, you know, you could barely hear what was going on because everyone was sort of talking and the sound was bad. So it was more sort of everyone turning to each other going, did he just announce that Hosni Mubarak's gone? Yeah, I think he has. And then people start shouting and it's like, and it was just an incredible moment. And before I know it, half an hour or 45 minutes have passed and I'm just sitting there with a big smile looking around me and I look at my phone and it's got... 20 missed calls from the newsroom and I think oh, call them up and they're like where are you <laughs> you know you realize your job is to report the news and there I was like oh I'm because I realized in that moment that I felt like my job was done when he stepped down but they didn't think that because yeah. they were right my job as a reporter was to talk about what was yeah. exactly what was going on but I wasn't interested in that part because it was so personal. Because it was so personal. Because in my heart, I was an activist, and my mm. and my mandate in my heart was to was to topple this this regime. And then it's a terrible thing to bring this down again. But of course, what happened next, Shireen? Mm. During the protest, so this would have been just actually a few days before Hosni Mubarak stepped down. There was this epic battle called the Camel Battle. And this was an attempt by the regime, you could call it like a final attempt to, you know, try and disturb the protest in Tahrir Square and disband it. So what they did is sent what they call supporters of Hosni Mubarak, the president, which were really just paid thugs, um, to attack the protesters in the square. And it's called the camel battle because there were literally camels people riding on camels and I think two horses as mm. well with swords who stormed the protest. And um, I could see it happening from the bridge where I was and I, and I sort of ran down with my cameraman, but unfortunately I get separated from him and this is still broad daylight, um, but there's a stampede. I get um, pinned against um, a fence and I'm assaulted by a group of men. And this maybe took five minutes and it maybe took 25 seconds. I, I, it's hard to actually say. And I'm, I'm honest in the book about, you know, how much I can really recall of it. But let's be clear, Shireen, it was an out and out sexual assault. Yes. Yes. And I, and, you know, I, I'm, 
It's a vivid moment in the book. And, yes, you know, there were physical marks on my body and, you know, my clothes were torn off me. Um, but there's this incredible moment where, as this is happening, a man and with, you know, who I think is his wife are running. They see me sort of pinned against this this fence and he reaches over and he sort of grabs me from whatever he could grab, I think half of my jeans and half of my shirt. And he he lifts me over to his side of the fence with his wife. And I sort of fall down, I look up and he just says, run. And 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 I run. And I spend the rest of the night because now it's post-curfew, so I can't get back to my to where I was staying. So I spend the rest of the night trying to find some sort of safety. Um, but while I do, I'm the reporter that's on the ground. So I'm, I continue to broadcast. I continue to give live updates on the phone. Um, I continue to, to do my job and report. And um, it's I think it's one of the more sort of incredible chapters to read in the book mm. because it's sort of one event after the other. Um, so I, do, I don't want to give away too much, but it's a harrowing experience from sort of start to finish. It is an extraordinary chapter and captures your determination, the fact that you kept broadcasting through that when you must have been in deep shock. Yeah. And physically and threatened and yeah. violated in really in the most shocking circumstances. Um, it is it is a very compelling chapter indeed. But, but, I, but I, you know, I think that, the you know, that was probably the reason why it was hard to tell anyone what had happened. And I didn't for many years because... I thought no one's going to believe me because they heard me on air after it, yes. which would have been minutes after. And I seemed so composed and I was telling you what was going on. And then I continued and I was in this, on this balcony. I slept on this balcony. I reported all throughout the night. Um, so who's going to believe that this is not how a victim acts? Um, and, that, you know, that's why I say in the book that I, I didn't write that part necessarily to show you the dangers of being a, a woman in the field, although this is certainly something, you know, that's that's not unique to my experience. It, it was really it was really to show other victims and survivors of, of sexual abuse that it is our effort to survive and our strength that makes our story seem less believable. And I thought I had a responsibility to share that. You mentioned that there were many cases of sexual assault around yes. Cairo that night. I mean, the CNN reporter Lara Logan infamously was brutally beaten and raped that night. Yes. Um, Another so, night, the night of Mubarak's, um, the, yeah. the, the day that Mubarak stepped down, so a few days later. But there's certainly, you know, lots of incidents, yes. you know, during um, and mainly, you know, after as well. Yeah. Things became very dangerous uh, after that. They were clearly very dangerous then. But after that... Everything went downhill. Yeah, shall we? there was a real counter revolution, if you like. I think there was there was this euphoric moment for a while, and a real belief that we can choose as Egyptians our path. And then came sort of the reality that we had gotten rid of the man, but we had not gotten rid of the system, and the opposition um, was not strong enough. We hadn't sort of built in Egypt um, the strong enough force against sort of the military and the and the, what you could call the deep state to be able to rise um, to rise up. And so the beauty of the revolution, which was that it was leaderless, became its 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 main its Achilles heel. Yes. And you really began to feel you began to as, as colleagues were arrested. Yes. You, you escaped by the skin of your teeth. Yes. You then became very strongly a lobbyist strategizing for their release. 
But the reporting became less satisfying. You began to feel quite useless and powerless. Yes. And in the meantime, and we'll get to another bit that women will be very interested in, you had a boyfriend. Yes. Whom you'd been in a relationship with for four, four years. years. Yeah. You were very much in love with him. He was now your fiancé. Yeah. And in the middle of all this, you were going to get married. Yes. So tell me what happened. So, you know, we meet just after Hosni Mubarak's ousted in this sort of euphoric moment that we're describing in Egypt. He's half American and half Egyptian. I'm half British. and So we're both these halfies. Um, and we have so much in common. And we fall in love. And it's all wonderful. Um, and in the midst of this sort of terrible counter-revolution, me and him are sort of stronger and getting closer and sort of reporting on this and and feeling a real kinship um, at, at the sort of, you know, the decline of Egypt. Um, and he, in, in many ways, I think I stayed in Egypt and, and was able to sort of continue despite this hopelessness and the sadness because of him and other friends that were there. We were all in this together. We'd reported on the revolution. We will continue to report on the revolution. Um, and then... One day, <laughs> we decide um, we decide to get married. He asked me to marry him. And then um, on the day where we meant to go and sign our marriage papers, uh, he changes his mind and um, very surprisingly decides that he doesn't want to get married anymore. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but that is actually, even though I knew that was coming, it was it's really quite shocking yeah. when we get to that point in the book. Because he has invited a friend over. Yeah. And then simply... Exits. Exits. <laughs> yeah, it's. I guess it's, you know, every... Um, well, no, I shouldn't say that. But I, I guess it's it's many women's nightmare, especially if, you know, you, when you get engaged, the idea that you're going to... You're going to do all of these sort of wedding things, as I did. I got completely into the whole wedding did thing. Did you turn into a bit of a bridezilla? I was. <laughs> wedding planner and all. I mean, I would spend, I, I would be sitting there in like Iraq covering I don't know what, sort of shouting at why the centerpieces were purple when I asked for lavender. Um, it was really, it was embarrassing what happened. Um, I'm really a, a product of what happens when the wedding industry <laughs> How many you. people were invited to the wedding? I think about 400. 400. And it was going to his in the south of France. It was wonderful. Would have been. Um, I didn't attend. Other people had already bought their tickets and gone. So they did. Um, but I mean, you know, one could talk about it. This levity now. Um, yes. It's written with raw emotion in the book because I wrote that chapter about what happened to me maybe a month after he he, he did what he did. So that's the first thing that I'd written. Of and the it book. does feel raw. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of fascinated by details such as the, the difference between normal packing and revenge yes, packing. Yes, revenge packing. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a detail in there that I people think we all will know. be... Yeah, they'll <laughs> be entertained by it even though they shouldn't be. Um, so there are some very difficult times after this even though you appear to have picked yourself up and dusted yourself off. But you did appear to make an attempt on your life, Shireen. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I described this real depression afterwards. I mean, in, in a moment, I had lost my, you know, the life that I thought I would lead, mm. my my boyfriend, who who I truly loved, you know, and, and, and can still say that to this day. Um, my job, because I had decided to to quit so that me and him can move here, actually to New York. And, you had no um, job. Start a new You were life. living in his, his Yeah, so his I had no, nowhere to live, no job, mm. no husband. <laughs> and it was, all, it was all just so quick. I mean, 
you know, that morning I thought my life was very, very different. And I was so used to these huge cataclysmic events in the world and these sort of political earthquakes, but I, I, I wasn't, I had never seen, you know, a personal earthquake like that. Mm. And it almost just, it, it just, it just demolished me. And I, um, I flew to London that same night after he, he did what he did. And um, luckily, well, my parents were, were with me, of course, because they were there for, for the signing of the wedding papers, yes. which what they thought. Um, and we all sort of sat in London where I grew up in my family home. My brother and sister flew from Dubai, which is where they were living, to, to, so that we can all be together. Um, and it was, it was a very difficult night. Um, and, you know, it's, it's still hard to know exactly where my head was at, but maybe people can identify with that feeling of just pure hopelessness, not being able to see a way forward and just wanting it all to stop, just, just wanting it to stop. Um, and I, you know, it, it, it took, it took something sort of big like that, like me walking out into the middle of the street for me to sort of realize how, how bad I had gotten to sort of see myself from the outside. And, and when that happened and, and when I sort of hit rock bottom like that, it was actually pretty helpful because I was able to sort of see, okay, that just happened. I can't believe I just did that and this this can't be it for me and of course it wasn't because in the middle of all this this terrible drama you had actually forgotten about an interview with Amnesty International that's right that's right which, which uh, you, so you'd already made that a very very important decision yeah. to, to yeah. reach out to some some other yeah sorry to a new career yeah you didn't show up for that interview I didn't what happened <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, the, the interview was meant to happen the morning before we go and sign our, our civil marriage papers. It was the only time that Amnesty could interview me over Zoom because they were in London. I was in Cairo. Um, and I thought, you know, I want to make this change, but quite honestly, everyone was still telling me, like, come on, you're going to work in human rights. You're a journalist. You're the Middle East correspondent for Sky News. And, and it, it was still very confusing. I just won a bunch of awards as well. We were doing so well. My team was was really rising within within Sky um, so it was a really hard choice. Um, I knew I wanted to make it, but I wasn't completely sure and I wasn't prepared for the interview. But then, you know, my fiancé walks in, says what he says. I end up in London. I, <laughs> I, you know, have that terrible night. And then the next morning I wake up and I see an email um, saying, you know, you failed to show up. So we take it you're not interested in interview with Amnesty International. And I write back and I say, I'm so sorry. It was a personal thing that happened. Um <laughs> Too much to explain. I don't explain what it is. I just say a personal event happened. I don't suppose there's any way you would still consider interviewing me. I actually happen to be in London today. And they write back quickly going, sure, actually we can. I mean, if you're in London, that's a really good opportunity to meet because that's where the panelists are. So I end up sort of, you know, I think it's now 48 hours after my fiancé has left me um, in Cairo. I'm now in London and heading to an interview. And I had no clothes with me for an interview. So the first thing that happens is that my mother, my brother, and my sister drive me to Zara, <laughs> where they dress me from head to toe. I'm talking, I didn't even have shoes. So, and and I remember this great moment where I'm sitting in the changing room and they're, they're getting me things. And my brother, who has no interest in clothes, 
picks up these like ridiculous heels and like this hot pink or whatever and goes, how about these? These would be good. And I just remember looking at him going, thank you. I'm not going to wear these, but thank you for the thought. Not in a hot um, pink mood, yeah. I don't think. No, but thank you for the thought. So, and But, but just the love that surrounded yeah. me from my family in this moment that was so dark. Um, and I it really propelled me. And I, I just sort of, had, you know, when you have to do things that... And you don't know where you get the strength from. Um, and that's what happened. I go to my interview at Amnesty. I give an Oscar-winning performance of A Confident Woman. And um, on my way out, the in some, you know, the, one of the directors, they, they stop me and they're like, that was really, that was really great, actually. You know, I, we'd love to offer you this, but, you know, I know that you still have a wedding in France and then you've got a party and then you've got, then you've got your honeymoon and we really need someone in New York, like, tomorrow. And I go... <laughs> No problem. I'm actually <laughs> free. I happen to be free. And there's this great moment where his face lights up because that's excellent. And I think, thank you for being happy about this <laughs> terrible moment. But it, it was actually quite, it was nice. It was nice that there was something, something good was happening. So, um, you know, I won't, I won't lie to you that it was all sort of no. full steam ahead and wonderful and I forgot. No, I, I still, I, I missed him and I missed our, our, the life, but I... I carried on because the sense of purpose for what I had was starting to embark on, a career with amnesty and a career in human rights, gave me that lift and this want to continue that was sort of beyond myself. Also, I think you also mentioned that New York is a great city for the heartbroken. Yes. Which I wouldn't have thought. Mm. I would have thought it would be a very lonely city for the heartbroken. But that isn't what you found. No, I mean, I think it was just this idea of reinvention. You know, I describe going to parties and it's like, yeah, I used to be a lawyer. Now I fly jets over the Hudson. Okay, um, and this other, this other, these other people who are now, you know, death doulas, but they used to be, they used to be, um, I don't know, accountants. Like everybody's constantly reinventing themselves. Everyone's in different parts of their life. There's no, oh, you're in your thirties, you must be married. Where are your kids? There, there wasn't any of that in New York City, at least, um, or or the sort of where I was, where I was operating, and it just offered this this new life. Nobody knew me there. Even the time zone, it was so cut off that I wasn't really aware of what was going on in Egypt where my you know, ex-fiancé was, not even what was going on in London. I was just in my own, my own world and I was able to sort of rebuild in a way. Um, still super painful yeah. um, and super, still very yeah. lonely and scary because, you know, I'm in a new city. Um, but, but also some, you know, also gave me this freedom to start again. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And you, I mean, it's another sign of how determined you are, Shireen, that you, you, you go into the UN as Amnesty yeah. representative, a place you have no clue about. No idea. They have an yeah. entirely different language. Yes. Uh, which is really uh, very annoying, I'd say. Um, an awful lot of time wasting, which must must have been very frustrating considering yeah. your work history. Right. Um, 
And the fact, I suppose a lot of people think the Ewan is just a talking shop. Can you just tell us before we wrap up? Mm. It's not a talking shop, really. It's worth hanging in there. Right. I mean, I think that you can very easily cast aside the UN as all they do is sit and talk about world politics. Nothing gets done. The Security Council, useless. Paralysis. What's the point? But at the end of the day, the UN Security Council has the power to authorize the use of force, to um, refer situations to the International Criminal Court, They can make war and peace. They can stop wars. They can prevent wars. So they have incredible power, those 15 members. And I think that we often give the UN and the Security Council especially a free pass with this idea that it's useless, that it it doesn't, they can't achieve anything. Um, and, And that's wrong. What we should be doing is holding them to account for the power that they have and telling them and reminding them constantly um, of what they should be doing and the responsibility and the mandate that they have. So that's what we do at Amnesty. It's what I try and do every day. Well, and in the end, Shireen, while you're doing all this, and and that's very persuasive what you've just said, (laughs) in the meantime, just to satisfy everybody's curiosity out there, did you find new love? I did. Yes, I did. I finally did. And I, I talk in the book about how through sort of realizing what I really wanted to do in my in my life, where where my role is in the process of change. Maybe it wasn't exposing injustice, it was fighting injustice through through being honest with myself. I I found someone who is wonderful and kind to me and makes me feel safe and chooses to be with me every day. And this was the person that I was always meant to be with. I'm so grateful for him. And you dedicate your last line in your acknowledgements to three yes. people, and two of whom I presume are his children. Yes. Uh, so you you feel complete. I do. I'm so lucky. And, do you know, I always thought I was going to grow up and have this wonderful marriage with these two kids. And then, you know, I'm, I'm 42 now. So up until I was sort of 39, this was not happening. I was completely alone. The idea of having two kids was had gone from my head. And then suddenly life has this way. You meet this man. You have He has these two amazing children. They feel like my own. Um, and it is all as it should be, but it just doesn't look like how I imagined it. Let me tell listeners that Shireen skates over that bit in the book. So mm-hmm. you obviously you want to keep that extremely private. Mm-hmm. But it actually is rather a lovely ending. And mm-hmm. the fact that you're here with your mother in Ireland mm-hmm. going around talking about this is wonderful. Thank you so much. I think the book is a fantastic read. You you really engage with issues that I think a lot of journalists in particular will find great interest in. But just as a general as a general look at the world without getting without getting into in too much into the into the entrails of it. Mm. I think you really paint an amazing picture of complexities and the usefulness of the job Amnesty does. So I'm sure Amnesty are very, very proud to have you. Thank you so much. Shireen Tadros, thank you so much for coming to the Women's Podcast. Thank you for listening. That was Shireen Tadros there and her book, of course, is called Taking Sides. And it's a really brilliant read. That's all we have time for. Thanks very much for listening. If you've any comments on what you've heard, we're on social at IT Women's Podcast or on email the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan, Aideen Finnegan, and me, Roshi Ningle, with JJ Vernon on sound. That's it from me. Mind yourselves, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>